I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2009. Enjoy. Well, frequent listeners to the morning show probably know by now that I do my very best to read the books before I interview authors. Uh, That turned out to not be possible in the case of this interview. Uh, The publisher has sent me a copy. It has not yet arrived, and uh, I went to the local bookstore last night uh, hoping to... um, to purchase a copy because I really was anxious to see this book, and uh, apparently they had uh, sold out the uh, copies they had had on hand. So uh, I am operating from a bit of a loss because this is a topic uh, well outside of my normal range of experience, but that may make it all the more exciting and interesting. The book at hand is called Sunday Money, Speed, Lust, Madness, Death, A Hot Lap Around America, with NASCAR, uh, a book published by uh, HarperCollins. And uh, this book, of course, helps us understand uh, a remarkably explosive phenomenon in American culture. I mean, NASCAR is as hot as anything uh, that entertains us right now. And uh, the author of this book, Jeff McGregor, a senior uh, writer for Sports Illustrated magazine, uh, did not know a whole lot about this world or culture uh, either. And uh, he took uh, quite a long time, uh, in fact, I believe nearly a year, traveling around in an RV with his wife uh, to experience this world of NASCAR uh, firsthand and has written this highly regarded book, which I still hope I'll get to read, but it will be after the fact. In the meantime, for the next few minutes, uh, you and I will learn something about NASCAR from Jeff McGregor as we talk about his book called Sunday Money. Jeff McGregor, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Well, thanks so much for having me. And, and uh, on the one hand, my heart is broken that you could not find the book. On the other hand, my heart soars that they were <laughs> sold out. Right. It was uh, uh, good, and, good news and bad news. <laughs> it, it, it's, a, uh, it's a fairly simple premise. Uh, like you, I, I came to stock car racing uh, innocent, if not utterly ignorant, of the sport itself and the, the cultural phenomenon it's been driving. And, and so just plunged in. The, the premise is that my wife, who's a photographer, and I bought a, a teeny tiny motorhome, and we went to every race for an entire season, hmm. figuring that that kind of uh, uh, immersion was the only way to understand it. I think that's, I think that's been borne out. Uh, uh, NASCAR is unique in that unlike baseball or football or basketball, where the team is part of a community, NASCAR rolls from city to city like a big traveling carnival. Hmm. And the only way to see it uh, for a book like this was to travel with the other carnies. There are twelve or 1,300 people week in, week out, the drivers, the crews, uh, the members of the press, who travel from city to city. And, and so that was sort of what we went out to find uh, and and did find and and it was a great way to meet the fans as well. So, um, in a way, we lived the NASCAR fans' dream. Uh, in another way, it was it was like like being Sisyphus. No matter no matter how far you drove, you always had to drive more to get to the next. Track. <laughs> you you came at this um, not as a fan. Um, did you come away from this as a fan? I, I think so. I, you know, again, I, I've got to qualify that a little bit. I come at all sports from a position of, of really studied 
neutrality, sort of one foot in, one foot out, um, because I think that's the only way I can write about them. In, in this case, I was so deeply embedded uh, in NASCAR for so long that we came out of it uh, having made friends. And so we root, if not for success, at least the safety of the people we know. And I, I have an understanding of it as this sensational American spectacle, uh, of which I am a, a, a fan. Hmm. There's really nothing like it in, in any other American sport, and having been lucky enough to cover some big events. Uh, as I say in the book, the, the Super Bowl, uh, compared to the Daytona 500, is an afternoon spent on a morphine drip. I mean, it's just <laughs> the, the scale of this thing. Uh, the first time you walk into one of these immense venues, like a Daytona, or uh, an Indianapolis, and you see 200,000, 250,000, 300,000 people boiling up into those stands. It's extraordinary. Uh, and the pageant that goes with it. So what, what I tried to get at in the book was not just the, the nuts and bolts, pardon the pun, of uh, racing itself, but sort of the spiritual component and the emotional component and what is making it so popular all of a sudden? What are fans seeking in it? Uh, Can I ask um, if people, generally speaking, regard this as a sport and these drivers as athletes, as you just uh, called them? I mean, it obviously gets covered uh, by the best uh, sports magazine of them all, Sports Illustrated, for, for which you write. Uh, but I think some of us kind of have a hard time even just getting to first base in terms of just sure, thinking sure. Of, of race car driving as a sport. Well, that's one of the, 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 the constant arguments that, that underlies uh, the sports growth. People who are resistant to stock car racing, and there are many millions of them in America, uh, bring that up sort of as their primary argument. I, I think that in terms of the drivers being athletes, of course, uh, you have to regard them as you would regard a jockey in a horse race. Um, they are operators of a kind who face great challenges, physical and strategic and mental, uh, as they do what they do. So I think you, you, you sort of have to default to the, 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 the jockey argument. Uh, yes, of course, they are athletes. And certainly racing um, is a sport, and, and uh, you know, two little fun facts to know and share. The earliest piece of sports writing on record is, in fact, uh, from the Iliad. Homer writes about the chariot races at Patroclus' funeral. And so, you know, it's, it's, been, it's been considered a sport uh, for four, 5,000 years. Uh, the other thing is, is this, that if you look at Hemingway, uh, he would have told you in a, in a, in a boozy, smoky uh, state in some Havana bar, 50 years ago, that there are only three real sports, boxing, mountaineering, and racing. Everything else is just a game. And so that's sort of, that's sort of the argument that gets made. So I think, yes, your default settings have to be there are athletes, and it is a sport. Hmm. I guess part of what makes it seem not quite so much like a sport is the fact that so much depends on the machines that sure. they are driving. Sure. And I mean, and I suppose, I mean, if when we're talking about things like the luge and so on, I mean, that's obviously the case, too. But but, you know, in, in, in a sense, when it's all said and done, you sort of feel like the the, the car they're driving is as much an athlete as mm -hmm. the guy just sitting behind the steering wheel. 
I think I think that's part of what, in in my mind, sets this apart just a little bit, well, even if it doesn't rule it out as a sport. That's true, and and but but you've got to realize that that post industrial revolution, uh, we have become a uh, a race of people pretty well wedded to their machinery. And I think that's one of the things that accounts for NASCAR's soaring popularity is we've reached a point in human development where it's okay for the machinery to be our surrogate in a lot of ways. Um, part of what fans love, real hardcore fans love about NASCAR, is the infinite dynamic variability of the cars themselves. That's part of the challenge, engineering the car, adjusting the car. And one of your responsibilities as the driver is not just sort of the physical challenge of sitting in this incredibly hot little convection oven for four hours, uh, but it's also communicating to your crew what the car is doing. So there's a level of nuance to stock car racing, to racing of all kinds, that, that casual fans or, or anti-fans uh, don't really embrace or accept. But to true fans, uh, uh, the real hardcore fans down in the chicken bone seats. That's part of what makes racing so exciting, is, is not just does the driver have uh, courage or skill, but what is the driver doing to make the car better uh, in the course of a race. Hmm. And, and so there is, you know, it's not like track, where the, the only engine is the human engine, but there's this further level of complication, and I think that's one of the things that real fans dote on. I mean, racing, stock car racing especially, can be as simple as, oh, that pretty blue car won. <laughs> or it can be as complicated as string theory if you choose to make it so. Right. It reminds me, I guess, now as you talk of, of uh, those who follow the exploits of someone like Lance Armstrong, mm -hmm. who did such uh, remarkable work not only on himself and his body, but uh, the way in which he and his team were uh, in a constant state of, of perfection in mm -hmm. terms of the bikes he rode. Exactly. Take anything away from Lance Armstrong by dint of the engineering expertise that was applied to the bike. You know, I think most of us figure that Lance would do pretty well on a, on a 39-pound Schwinn. Um, but, but you sort of accept the bike as a given in that sport. So I, I think that, that, you know, people, at least some folks, are relatively comfortable with the idea that the horse, or the machine in this case, is doing most of the real work. We're speaking with Jeff McGregor, and we're talking about his book called Sunday Money. So this odyssey uh, took you nearly a year. Uh, your wife, uh, who's a photographer, uh, I think you said, uh, came along with you. Uh, was she uh, excited about this as you were? Uh, no. <laughs> I, she, she considered it sort of a, a crackpot scheme. I believe the, the word harebrained was used several times mm. uh, throughout the year. You have to understand that, that, that embedding yourself in this way is a, is a real challenge. And, and we sort of sat one night with a legal pad and tried to figure out how could we do this, how could we go to every race, and, and really capture uh, the spirit and the sense of stock car racing. And it became apparent to us that the only way to do it was to follow uh, the big rolling show from venue to venue in a motorhome. And, and so for the first month, the novelty sort of carried us forward in our idiot optimism. <laughs> but then by the second month, we realized what we'd bitten off. And we drove 50,000 miles in 10 months. Uh, 
in a in a in a car that you know got nine miles to the gallon had a top speed of forty eight <laughs> miles an hour, and it was challenging because you'd you'd wake up in 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 Florida on a Monday morning having covered a Sunday race and you'd have to be in California Wednesday night, hmm. uh, and if you want to either uh, cement or destroy your marriage, these are the circumstances under which that must be done. <laughs> uh, how did this? Uh, work for you professionally, if I may ask? I mean, were you on leave from Sports Illustrated, or did your duties with Sports Illustrated continue? Well, what we, what we managed to do, um, I, throughout that year, wrote pieces for the magazine based on what we were sort of seeing right in front of us. I wrote three very long profiles that year of Dale Earnhardt Jr., Tony Stewart, and Jeff Gordon. All three of those pieces eventually became chapters in the book. So I was working while we were doing it. My wife was shipping photos back to the magazine as well. So, we, you know, we were, we were double-dipping in that way. We were working for the magazine and also gathering material for what eventually became a book. I'm not, I'm not sure that we even knew that there was a book in this when we first began. Hmm. Uh, it was sort of under the auspices of SI because... The magazine understood that, that they had not covered racing uh, either widely or deeply for years and years. And so the, 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 the great tidal wave of American interest in it sort of took them by surprise. And this was an effort to sort of um, uh, resolve that. Very uh, to good. Send, yeah, to send me out on safari and try to figure it out. And, and that has a lot to do with the death of Dale Earnhardt. Um, it was not his death that moved the sport forward so much as it was the, the outpouring of grief which followed and was something on a scale that hadn't been seen since Elvis died. Hmm. And that got the attention of all the media mavens uh, in midtown Manhattan, the folks who make the decisions about what we read and see and hear. And so that's why I was sort of able to propose it, uh, because clearly at that point, stock car racing had snuck up on the media establishment as this huge and, and uh, 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 as you said, explosive uh, phenomenon of, of entertainment growth. I, I need to learn from you a little bit about NASCAR itself. First, I, I want to know a little more generally about just what kind of racing we're talking about. I mean, that's that's what an ignoramus I am about all of this, is that you know, when, when you watch racing on television involving vehicles, they don't always look the same. So there's clearly certain distinctions which I don't begin to understand. Uh, tell us what kind of racing this exactly is. Well, this is, I'm going to compare it to a couple of other kinds of things uh, that, that the folks would have seen, you know, on their travels with their remote control on a, on a slow weekend. Uh, NASCAR is the National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing sort of redundantly named, but the, the key to it is stock car. And what that means is that these are cars uh, that, at least today, look very much like the car in your driveway. They've got fenders on them. They've got uh, a, a roof, uh, windshield, rear window. They look like street cars. And, and when the series began in the late 1940s, that's absolutely what they were. The racers were driving cars. They rolled off the showroom floor. Now, this is to be compared to, say, an Indy car, one of those open-wheel, purpose-built uh, speedsters we just saw on Memorial Day weekend in Indianapolis, 
or with Formula One, which globally is the most popular kind of auto racing, um, which is also an open-wheel car, no fenders, and that, that little aerodynamic sort of fuselage with a wing on the back. Stock car racing is mostly done on ovals. There are a couple of races a year held on road courses where the drivers turn both left and right. But stock car racing in the main is uh, uh, done on oval tracks uh, that vary in length between half a mile and, say, two and a half miles in NASCAR. And you've got cars running at a place like Martinsville uh, at speeds no higher than 110, 120 miles an hour. And you've got cars at Talladega running just over 200 miles an hour uh, in some cases. So there's a lot of variation even within the stock car thing. Mostly it's, 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 it's you know, putting your foot all the way to the floor and turning left. <laughs> Are these races all the same length? I mean, when we're talking about around an oval track? No, a lot of folks think they are. When they say Daytona 500, they're driving 500 miles. When they say it's the Martinsville 500, they mean 500 laps. Hmm. So they're not all the same. They're not all the same length by any means. Um, and they vary in terms of the length of, of time each take, but generally what they're trying to give you, what NASCAR is trying to give you for the price of the ticket, is around three hours of racing. Although on Memorial Day, they held their longest race of the season, which is the Coca-Cola 600, uh, which takes every bit of four hours, four and a half hours, depending on the number of caution flags. That come and out. you're saying from the start of the race to the end of the race, you're not just talking about the pre-race buildup and all of that added in. No. I mean, the race itself lasts race that itself. long. Yeah. Wow, I never would have guessed that. Uh, is, this, is this something that um, is very easily experienced on television? I mean, obviously, it's on television a lot. And, uh, and when, a, when a terrible crash occurs, I mean, that's really something spectacular. But otherwise, it seems to me, from my amateur eye, that it is not, not easy for television to really capture not only, I don't even mean the magic and the mystique of all this, but just what exactly is happening in this race. Well, television, you know, television does that with every sport it covers. It, it changes it. It becomes a thing seen on TV. And, and in that way, a football game is different in person than it is on television. Uh, I will say about racing this, that you cannot possibly begin to understand the most primal appeal of racing without going to the track. It is sensational in the, in the absolute definition of that word. It's loud. It's hot. Um, it smells. I mean, racing has a, has a particular set of scents about it, you know, burning rubber, uh, 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 burning oil, burning gasoline. Uh, and it's overwhelming. It's at once this sort of sensory deprivation because you're deafened by the sound <laughs> and this sensory overload. It's extraordinary. Hmm. But that said, there's a version of that that can be conveyed on television because you can see things on television you couldn't see if you were sitting in the 50th row of the grandstand. You can see, for example, the driver in the cockpit. Hmm. One, of the, one of the things that's made racing way more popular in the last 20 years is the development of really tiny television cameras. So now you've got in-car cameras. Uh, which allows you to see what the driver's going through. You've got, car, you've got cars with cameras all over the body, so you get views of things that you couldn't possibly have just sitting in the grandstand. So the television broadcast is different, but depending on who you ask, may in fact be better uh, to see certain things. If you and I were sitting together in the grandstands at Talladega, 
we'd be so far away from the second turn that we really couldn't see two guys fighting back and forth for 16th place. On television, it's very easy to show that. So uh, television has its own set of appeals in a way. And I think racing really does work on television in a way, frankly, that baseball never has. Baseball, it's odd. Baseball is the national pastime. Uh, has always struggled with television because none of the angles in baseball fit inside a rectangle. Hmm. Um, it's you know, played on a diamond, you mean? Exactly. Among, yeah. if, if you look at if you look at that over the shoulder shot from the center field camera the next time there's a Brewers game on, uh, you're not looking quite straight on to the strike zone, and that's been a problem since they began broadcasting baseball in the late '40s. Football, on the other hand works beautifully because it's laid out on this rectangular grid that's almost exactly the same aspect ratio as a television screen. So the, the phenomenon of what works on television, what gets popular on television, is really really interesting to me, and there's a lot about that in the book. Hmm. I was wondering, too, about if we really, maybe, maybe with some of these miniature cameras that are actually inside cars, we start to get a better sense of, of just what these speeds are. Hmm. It seems to me when we're seeing... The cars uh, uh, externally going around this track, I'm not sure we get as much of a sense of just how fast these cars are moving, mm-hmm. not, as, not as much uh, of a potent sense of that as we would if we were in the stands, I mean, right there. Th- that's very true. I mean, all speed on television is sort of relative. Um, but, but they've found ways over the last 10 or 15 years to sort of heighten the effect of the, of the speed. And the in-car camera does give you a sense of that. Uh, as does a fixed camera, say, at the end of a straightaway, where you've got a car going past six inches away, uh, at 200 miles an hour, you get an immediate sense of, of uh, how fast these cars are going. And, and so, again, the, the television thing is, is, the television portrayal of racing is different than racing itself. But given the increase in television ratings for the sport, it's obviously a very attractive uh, alternative. How long is the NASCAR season? It's, uh, as I say in the book, it, and they never stop telling you this, the NASCAR <laughs> publicists never stop saying, it's the longest season in professional sports. Uh, the first race is in February, generally, and the last race is in November. So it just it goes on and on and on. And, and one of the things the public doesn't necessarily realize is the exhaustion uh, for those twelve or 1,300 people who travel every week. Uh, with the NASCAR Travel and Tent and Revival show, is profound. By the beginning of October, people are absolutely wrung out. Um, and I describe this as best I can in the book, because you're talking about you know people who are working 90 or 100 or 120 hours a week on these cars and then traveling to these venues uh, uh, in addition to that. So it is, it is every, every, every moment of the longest season in professional we're talking with Jeff McGregor about his book Sunday Morning Sunday Money uh, Speed Lust Madness Death a Hot Lap Around America with So how frequently do these races occur? Um, NASCAR, you know, races almost every weekend. The season lasts about 40 weeks and there are 36 races. So there're going to be some weekends off. Historically, you would get Easter weekend off or Mother's Day weekend off. Um, but just about week in, week out. And does this operate, for instance, similar to uh, to the tennis season, where you have uh, 
events that are relatively fixed in the calendar, at least in terms of their seasons and so on? Uh, or, or each and every season does this play out a little bit differently? <clears throat> well, historically, uh, the races were pretty well fixed. They, were, they might change one or two dates from year to year. Uh, but then in the last 10 years, and certainly in the last five, there's been a lot of rejiggering of the NASCAR schedule as race dates were taken away from some of the older tracks and awarded to some of the newer tracks. Part of the NASCAR phenomenon is that it is now present in markets where historically it hadn't been present before. Southern California, uh, the upper Midwest, uh, Kansas, uh, Las Vegas, Texas. And as those new tracks came online, they had to take race dates away from some of the uh, older perhaps more historically important venues uh, like Darlington or Rockingham or North Wilkesboro. Those tracks all lost dates. So it changes, but it, it tends to be evolutionary rather than revolutionary. Uh, and, and you can generally count on, uh, you know, the Labor Day race being at a certain track, uh, plus or minus a day or two, year in, year out. Um, again, uh, another, <coughs> another question which reveals my ignorance. Um, these events always occur on racetracks, automobile racetracks. These are not facilities that are otherwise used for other things. No, this is, and it's not like, uh, uh, say, the Indy Championship cars we were talking about earlier, where you have road courses, where they'll close all the streets in Montreal or they'll close some streets in Long Beach, California. Uh, these are always on racetracks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and racetracks generally don't get used for much else. I was going to say, and... When, when it's not NASCAR, these racetracks, I don't assume, stand completely empty. Then is it local races or, or other sorts of races that are not a part of this professional well, world? Or? Yeah, not so much. I mean, you, uh, in NASCAR's case, NASCAR being a sanctioning body, they have three major series. They have the Nextel Cup series, which is sort of the, the major league. They have the Bush series, which is a, a, an incrementally smaller car which would be the equivalent of their AAA minor league. And then they have the Craftsman Truck Series, which is their AA minor league. Um, so a, a, any track might have more than one or two events at it during a given year, but mostly what you're talking about is this huge uh, venue set down in the middle of an even huger parking lot uh, that sits unused. Uh, teams will test tires uh, at some of the tracks. Or there will be other series like ARCA or ASA who come in and use the track. But mostly, it's a, it's a flea market. The other, the other 360 days of the year, what are you going to do with a big, empty you know, asphalt bowl? And so uh, that's one of the big political issues in NASCAR when they, when they try to expand in new markets, selling that local population on the idea that it's going to cost millions to build this thing and that really you know, the other 360 days a year, it's going to be a farmer's market. Hmm. Uh, I know your, your odyssey took you, I believe, to 35 different states. Yes. Um, is NASCAR sort of everywhere in the United States, or uh, is it uh, a bit of a regional phenomenon? Well, it began as a regional phenomenon, certainly. Uh, and I, I, I tell the history of NASCAR in the, in the book sort of as, as quickly as I can. Uh, but it's a series that, that began in the South, really, is the, is the creation of one man, Bill France, uh, who was based in Daytona Beach, Florida. 
And so it grew up as a southern sport for a lot of different reasons and, and very much thrived in the southeast, sort of the, the traditional Confederate states. Uh, but in the last 20 years has, has, has grown by leaps and bounds. Auto racing has always been popular in this country. As, as Richard Petty will tell you, auto racing has been popular since the day they built the second car. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's been just as popular in Vermont as it is in Oregon. It's, it's fantastically popular everywhere. Mm-hmm. NASCAR sells the, the, the most flavorful version of that. But, uh, you know, they, just, they bought land in uh, uh, Pacific Northwest to build a new track there. And, and this is something a lot of folks don't know. They just bought a huge chunk of land on Staten Island to bring a racetrack to New York. Wow. Uh, and there are hundreds of thousands of, of NASCAR fans in, in the metropolitan area uh, who, who now sort of either have to go to the raceway at Pocono or the raceway up in New Hampshire uh, to see a race. But, but NASCAR, I, I think, is such a savvy business enterprise. They'll get a track built in, uh, in New York. Hmm. So explain uh, how you and your wife handled this cross-country odyssey over the course of a year through 35 different states, basically following uh, the top rung of, of, of NASCAR races wherever the season took you. Uh, just tell us kind of logistically uh, how you would do that. Well, we were pretty self-contained in our little motorhome. Um, food, water, light, power, you know, all the stuff you would need. And this is not your grandparents' version of a recreational vehicle where you drive a couple miles and stop and then drive the next day a couple miles. Uh, as I said earlier, we'd sometimes have to get from northern Florida to California in two and a half days. So we'd have to drive 750, 800 miles in a sitting, which would be 16, 17 hours. We had the schedule uh, in front of us, so we knew pretty much exactly where we had to be and when we had to check into the press center for the next race. So. Really, it's, it was a matter of, of sort of, you know, rolling into the track, whatever track, on, say, Wednesday night or Thursday afternoon to find our space either in the campground or the infield. And then we'd be at the track through the race, which generally gets run Sunday afternoon. And then we would either pull out Sunday night or Monday morning and head off to one of two places, either the next track or, if the next track was really nearby, we would wind up parked in a Walmart parking lot. One of the one of the you know great secrets of RVing is that Walmart allows you to park your RV overnight in their parking lot, so you don't have to pay for a campground. Uh, on the assumption, I guess, that you'll wake up in the morning and walk into the Walmart and spend some money. Hmm. So, you know, campers, diehard motorhomers know this. In fact, they call it Wally World. So we would live at Wally World between a lot of the races. So basically, we spent a year in America's parking lot uh, with, with people walking by on their way in to, to, to buy whatever Americans buy, sort of looking in our window while we sat in our little dinette in our bathrobes drinking coffee and talking about what we were going to do that day. Now, it seems to me that there are two different ways you could have gone about this, that or, or two different stories to cover. I mean, one would be, and I know you do this to some extent, is helping us know some of these really important drivers, and for that matter, uh, the crew around them that, that make all this possible for Tony Stewart and mm-hmm. Jeff Gordon and others to achieve their success. But then there is also 
the world in the stands, the world of the fans. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you kind of go about balancing those two stories? Well, it, it became inevitable given the way we had chosen to do the book. Just, the, just the, as you say, the logistics of what we were doing, we were always parked with the fans. So the fans were, were five feet away uh, the entire year. We were, we were never not next to the fans. Uh, so you almost couldn't avoid telling their stories because you'd hear their stories uh, all weekend long. It, it's interesting. The drivers are such big stars that they all have uh, public relations who sort of handle their schedules. And you've got to deal with a lot of that. Uh, sort of, you know, it's very much like Hollywood now, where everything is sort of uh, pre-planned and agreed to, and, and you've got to schedule your five minutes, or your 10 minutes, or your 15 minutes. So we would be working at the track Thursdays through Sundays in very much the way that, that deadline reporters for newspapers did. We, we were there. We would schedule our interview time. My wife would be walking around getting pictures. And then the, 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 the counterbalance to that, obviously, is this huge life that goes on around the race itself. Uh, the big party track, for example, is Talladega. Uh, it is an absolute woodstock of uh, sort of good, clean, dirty fun. And, <laughs> and so we were, you know, we were up to our hips in it every weekend. Uh, and we would eat with the folks, and we would sit with the folks by the fire and... Uh, that's what you know. That's how the book found its shape. The book is very, very episodic. Uh, you know, it'll be two pages about this, twelve pages about that, fifteen pages about something else. Uh, it's it, it's a cultural flyover of America, as I, as I say uh, somewhere. It's you know, it's a snapshot of America taken from the window of a fast-moving car. <laughs> and and that's very much what it is. It's just these little vignettes of, of sort of NASCAR. Uh, from the grassroots up. One of the impressions that someone like I might have of, of NASCAR is that it is that we are talking about a, a, a relatively blue-collar and maybe rural clientele in terms of fans. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there any truth to that, or is that a terrible uh, oversimplification, or is that just plain wrong? Well, I think, it's, I think it's become wrong. I think at one time that was arguably right. Um, but I think that that's no longer the case. Certainly NASCAR as a business has made every effort to grow the sport uh, out of its original demographic, which might well have been uh, sort of rural blue-collar, as you say. But over the last 15 years or so, uh, the sport has crept into almost all economic corners of America. it's worked its way, you know, off the off the the farm into the suburbs, and NASCAR is working very hard to expand the sport into urban areas as well. So it's it's no longer safe to say that it's uh, uh, sort of a redneck regional thing uh, because it's not. And I can tell you pretty simply why that is. It costs somewhere between 15 and 20 million dollars a year to sponsor one of these cars to sponsor a competitive car and if you're Procter and Gamble or Budweiser or Home Depot you're not going to want your message delivered only to this narrow rural sort of confederate demographic you want to reach into as many households as you can 
so the corporate nature of the sponsorship of the sport is what's driving the broadening of the audience. Hmm. Let's talk for a moment about issues like gender and, and race, for that matter, um, in, in terms of, of whether or not the fans uh, are, are much more male than female. I'm guessing that might be the case. It also seems like this is much more of a, of a white sport than, than a black sport, uh, just well, to, to put are, it simply. Exactly. <laughs> you, are, you are right and you are wrong. Um, wrong in that women make up over 40% of the NASCAR audience. And that's one of the things those corporate sponsors love, is that it's a great mix of potential customers. Um, now, women on the track is a different story. It's interesting, in the, in the 50s, there were more women driving in NASCAR's top series than there have been in all the decades since. Wow. Uh, and I'm not quite sure how to account for that. And it seems like it should be a sport where gender shouldn't matter. Exactly right. And yet, of course, it does. And NASCAR is now sort of frantically trying to find its uh, uh, marquee woman driver in the way that IndyCar found Danica Patrick. And Danica Patrick, whether or not she wins or finishes even in the top ten, has brought a huge amount of attention back to IndyCar racing. So NASCAR wants a Danica Patrick equivalent. Hmm. NASCAR is also panicked, I don't think is too strong a word, that it is overwhelmingly, blindingly white, and has been for years and years and years. And NASCAR, to its credit, has tried many different things over the last 10 years to grow the sport into urban areas, to grow the sport uh, uh, with suburban African-American viewers and fans. And in the main has failed. They, they have not succeeded in that. Now, you go to any race uh, in any venue, and you are going to see uh, plenty of folks of color. But disproportionately, to this day, the sport remains uh, uh, white, absolutely white. And, and that's a big problem for NASCAR. NASCAR hasn't quite figured out the riddle of how to solve it yet. Hmm. As you completed this year-long odyssey, what do you think are the most uh, important things you, you learned, and, and maybe in particular the things which most surprised you ab about this world, this life, this culture? Well, the first thing that, that surprised us is just the, the epic scale of it. Uh, I mean, I've covered a lot of big sporting events, and you do not understand the concept of colossal until you've walked into uh, a place like Indianapolis or Daytona and see a quarter of a million fans bubbling up into those stands before the race begins. So a sense of gigantism, I think, was the thing that snapped our head back. Another interesting thing to me, at least, and I write about this extensively in the book, is sort of the, <clears throat> the nearly antique display of patriotism that attends every NASCAR race. Hmm. Uh, it is not nearly as simple as the singing of the anthem. It's the anthem. It's the benediction. It's the flyover. It's the fireworks. It's the honor guard. And keep in mind, we were doing this the year after September 11th. And, and that very much informed 
the season emotionally uh, that we were covering. And, and so that display of patriotism and that sort of wounded devotion on the part of the American public and the alternate moments of fear and courage and patriotism and hate was sort of extraordinary to see if you were, if you were sensitive to it. And I'm, I'm giving away a little bit here because, the, you know, the book is not so much about who won which race, although, of course, that's in there, too, but sort of the state of the nation as we found it that year. Hmm. And, and so those things, I, I, would, I would, you know, see the race beginning on Sunday, and the only thing I could compare it to was, was maybe a turn-of-the-century political convention. If you think about the, the photographs from the 1890s of all the bunting and the, and the display, I mean, that's what these tracks were like that year. Hmm. And that was extraordinary. Too. So you're guessing that th- this particular season, which you experienced, uh, might have been at least a little bit exceptional in the, in this way. I'm I'm not so sure. I mean, in in all the races we've seen since, uh, they haven't really throttled back on any of that. It's a uh, it's a passion play of Americana, in its way. In that in that two or three hours before the race begins, hmm. and I must say this too that that one of the great things about NASCAR is this coming together of a hundred thousand Americans. 80,000 of whom are camped at the stadium. I mean, you, you know, you talk about tailgating at Lambeau Field, where folks will say to you on a December morning, we've been out here since 9 o'clock in the morning. They're eating brats and drinking line and cool. You go to Daytona, and they'll say, we've been parked out here for three weeks. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. The culture that attends going to the track is extraordinary. And sort of the, the welcome we receive the generosity, the embrace of these strangers. I can't tell you how many times we were fed by people we'd never met before. Um, it was the whole sort of spectrum of, uh, of, of American goodness and badness and pettiness and drunkenness. and It was just extraordinary because it was all compressed uh, uh, into, these, into these small, relatively small uh, corners of the country. And uh, we were bowled over by that. And it sounds like they knew why you were there. Well, they, they did and they didn't. I mean, the, the, the great thing is that, that even if you're standing there with a notebook, after 15 minutes, people forget you're standing there. Hmm. And, and so uh, my friend Warren St. John wrote a book a couple of years ago called Rammer Jammer Yellow Hammer, where he had done uh, the rough equivalent by attending Alabama football games in a motorhome. And his experience was very much like ours. There were people who, who were not interested in being spoken to, but there were few. Uh, there were people who, who, who spoke way too much to you, as though they were trying to make it into the book. But then in the main, 95% of the folks you talked to, just after the, after the introduction, just sort of forgot you were standing there. Hmm. Uh, and if you could sort of keep your head and, and take the notes or get the picture, I, I think you got a fairly representative snapshot of Americans at play. And who they really are. Yeah, yeah, I don't think, nobody was, uh, nobody was trying to brush up their Shakespeare just because I was <laughs> standing there. It'd be the, the equivalent of preening for the camera. Exactly. Uh, but uh, no camera, of course, really present so, so much except your wife's, I guess. Well, and, and I got to tell you, people were fairly candid in, in their representation of themselves in that way, too. The pictures are really quite striking. Interesting. In uh we haven't actually spent hardly any time, maybe we can just spend a couple of closing minutes talking about some of the giants of the sport. Sure. Uh, 
with whom you had at least a little bit of contact through this project. I mean, some of the great drivers like Tony Stewart and Jeff Gordon and, and so on. By and large, what was that experience like, and uh, was it at all unique compared to uh, the contact you've had with uh, the elite athletes of, of other professional sports? Well, it's, it's uh, absolutely its own thing. It is unique uh, in professional sports. The level of access the fans have to these big stars. If you're a football fan, if you're a baseball fan, and you hang around the stadium after the game, if you're lucky, your favorite player will stop for 10 or 15 minutes and sign some autographs. Uh, more likely, uh, over the last decade, your favorite player is a blur on his or her way to an SUV with tinted windows, and then they're out of the parking lot. NASCAR, though, is very much like country music in that it enforces a certain intimacy between the fans and the drivers. And so I was absolutely overwhelmed by the access folks had to their favorite stars. And, and I never in that season, over the course of you know, something in excess of 300 days, saw anything less than like 60 people running it. Dale Earnhardt Jr. at any given moment. Hmm. He's, he's the sport's big matinee idol these days. And Stewart and Gordon as well are, are great champions and well thought of and much beloved. But with Dale Earnhardt Jr., it was uh, Day of the Locust, week in and week out. It was extraordinary to see the, the level of devotion and, and, and passion a lot of the fans have for these stars. That said, mostly just regular folks. Uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr., very smart young man and charming, uh, and, and had a quality of character that I didn't often see in other athletes. He would look you in the eye not only when you were speaking, but when he was speaking. A very straightforward and candid young man who bears a, a great burden forward. Uh, his father had died the season before we met him, and he ran the risk of becoming John F. Kennedy Jr., sort of the harmless attendant of the eternal flame of his father's memory. But he bore that burden with great grace. Hmm. Jeff Gordon was a lot more fun than you might think him to be. He seems very buttoned down and, and, and sort of straight uh, on camera, but is actually a fairly fun guy. And Tony Stewart is a hoot because he's got 12 different personalities, nine of which are perfectly funny and charming, the other three of which want to punch you in the face. <laughs> and so you're, you're never quite sure which one of those you were going to get. Uh, but then I also I had the chance to, to spend a lot of time around Richard Petty, uh, the king. And uh, the whole season was informed, uh, to a large extent, by the death a year earlier of Dale Earnhardt. And in his absence, he was omnipresent. Uh, and to see people sort of tending his memory that year was quite extraordinary. But one of the things I mean, one of the things I, I found about NASCAR is that the the drivers were accessible to the press in a way that very few other sportsmen are, and that they were just regular guys in most cases. I, I very rarely felt like I was being high hatted by any of the sports stars, whereas I've covered plenty of other sports and and found myself not only being sort of brushed off, but in in a couple of cases sort of physically moved. Uh, uh, by athletes who didn't want to speak to me. Hmm. 
I was actually, I'm, I'm a fairly large fellow. I'm, I'm six feet tall, about 200 pounds. I was actually uh, picked up and physically dangled by a linebacker for the Jets a couple of years ago when I was working on a story for them. He didn't like me standing that close to his locker. So no such adventures in the writing of this book, but plenty of other kinds of adventures uh, to yeah, be had. Yeah, it was really an extraordinary exploration of American sports and theater and, and the American id. And, and you know, somebody, somebody asked me the other day why Americans like racing, and I said, okay, you have big, loud machines, a lot of exposed flesh and beer. What American would like that? <laughs> so it becomes self-explanatory if you pause just a moment to think about it. I am looking forward to reading this book very much. Again, it's called Sunday Morning, Speed, Lust, Madness, Death, A Hot Lap Around America with NASCAR, published by HarperCollins. And Sports Illustrated's Jeff McGregor, the author. Jeff McGregor, uh, I have really enjoyed talking with you today, and I look forward to the book, and I appreciate you joining me today on The Morning Show. Best wishes. Thanks so much, Greg.